Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings. I have an exciting passage to share with you this morning. One that's already challenged and uh, encouraged me. And I think it will do the same for you before we're done here this morning. It's 1 Kings 21, and we're going to deal with the unholy alliance of politics and religion here this morning. What do you do when government goes bad? This message this morning is not only timely, but I think it's relevant in that uh, we find ourselves in the thick of a presidential and political campaign. There's a lot of that going around us, but also I think this particular passage is relevant because there is a tremendous anger and frustration with the voting public this season. It runs rampant. We all feel it, and maybe you feel it more acutely than than others. But part of our anger, I think, stems from the fact that we sense that our country is getting away from us. Don't you feel that way at times? When you see the things and the issues mounting up in ever-seeming greater heaps, you wonder, What can be done about that? And there's a sense that we're slipping as a country, that the real issues are being ignored or buried in partisan politics. And then we look around for those who are in leadership, our political leaders, and oftentimes our anger gets even more more intense doing that. It started, I think, four years ago, at least where the, the snowball began to start rolling when we saw Gary Hart uh, not only lie about his adultery, but flaunt it in, in some arrogant ways until the press rudely exposed him. And then we had a political candidate, Senator Joe Biden, who, whose bid for the White House was shipwrecked by plagiarism. But then we found out later, though most of us didn't read the follow-up, that that was just simply the tip of the iceberg. You see, Biden, Biden claimed that he had attended law school on a full academic scholarship that he had three graduate degrees and that he'd finished in the top half of his class. But as the information came forth, we discovered that he had received only a half of scholarship, not a full one. And not because of his academic expertise, but because of his financial need. It was aid. He didn't have three graduate degrees. He had only one. He didn't finish at the top of his class. He finished 76th out of 80. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Makes you lose heart. Makes you angry. We read lips, but there are still higher taxes to pay, aren't there? (laughs) There are bogus plane rides at taxpayers' expense. The Keating Five take a walk. And we wonder why. Is there no accountability? And most recently, we suffer through a check-writing scandal, appropriately named Rubbergate. You know, when Congressman Charlie Wilson of Texas was asked about his overdrafts in Congress, one of which was for $6,500 to the IRS, (laughs) he answered somewhat glibly. He said, it's no big deal. I mean, it's not like molesting young boys or young girls. Is that not incredible? That's incomprehensible logic. The same that was announced uh, this week in the newspaper 
in Paul Greenberg's article about our governor when he said that his syllogism of, of character goes like this. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Therefore, I'm as good as anybody. That doesn't make any sense, does it? But it helps get you elected. It really does. Politicians may say, let's get the character issue behind us. But I think what we're beginning to hear as a public is something much more ominous in tone about our future. And that is that we're beginning to bury character altogether. Jonathan Alter of Newsweek speaks for all of us when he says, much of our outrage comes from the dawning sense that the corrupt is commonplace and that it's just business as usual. What do you do when the government goes bad? Good question. I think 1 Kings 21 has some good insights that will help us, but maybe in some ways that will surprise you. You see, in our own historical documents, it says that government is of the people, for the people, and then listen, what's next? By the people. I want to camp on that last line just for a moment. You see, we, who we are, what we tolerate, the action we take is the seedbed out of which all government flowers eventually. By the people. It comes from us. I know I don't like that sense of responsibility put back on us. But government is a reflection of us, our, our ideas, and our standards. And for it to change, we must change because in us, all government first begins. What we are, it is. What we accept, it does. What we tolerate, it legislates. We're the government too. Government is ultimately the reflection of us, the people. But the good news, and this is 1 Kings 21, when we decide to change, so does it. And that's the message here this morning. Look at 1 Kings 21. We'll look at the first four verses. We're going to begin with an insider look at a corrupt monarchy. Now it came about that after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard that's in its place, if you like. I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed. And he turned away his face, and he ate no food. You know, the problem that we are introduced to at the beginning may seem like a small problem, but it's really not. It's a very obvious problem. King Ahab desires a piece of land that's next to his palace, and he offers the owner, Naboth, either a land exchange or some money for it. But notice in verse 3, Naboth's answer is, The Lord forbids me. Now, we'll talk about that here in a moment. But I want you to know this land acquisition deal originated, according to verse 1, by the palace of Ahab at Jezreel. 
It was a palace that served the king somewhat like Kenny Bunkport serves President Bush. It was a retreat site. It was a site that was located on Mount Gilboa that faced on the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And the kings would go to this summer resort palace in order to retreat and relax and refresh themselves. It was a favorite spot of King Ahab. It was positioned to catch the cool breezes of the Mediterranean. In verse 2, if you'll notice, it says that while he was there, he desired to have a vegetable garden. Maybe he was on a health kick for a time. And he wanted it convenient, as kings do, to his palace, not far away. And he noticed that there was a generous piece of land right next to the palace owned by Naboth. And so he calls Naboth in and offers him an exchange, not just an equal exchange, but a better vineyard for it, or cash if he would like. So on the surface, all this looks like a legitimate deal between king and commoner. But the reason Naboth turns it down is because Naboth is a godly man of principle. And though financially this would in all probability have been a good deal for him, the fact was such a transaction was forbidden by the Mosaic legislation. It was a violation of Old Testament biblical law. In Numbers 27, the command to the people who received land from their fathers is that you cannot exchange that land nor sell it unless you are absolutely destitute. And then it would be returned to you in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. So Naboth turns down what is in fact a good deal. And I think in turning it down, he had to overrule his flesh because it would have been a good deal for him. I think he would have to overrule that sensation that would pull him to make himself rich. And he would have to overrule the easy rationalizations, especially in this day and time with its low standards, that would have come to him saying, gosh, you need this, you need that, a new washer dryer, new chariots, new horses. He could have easily rationalized away why he needed to give the king this particular piece of land. But you see, Naboth was not controlled by greed. He was a man that walked not in feelings, he wasn't led by feelings or rationalization or even the need that a man might have in this particular day to seize an opportunity to buddy up with the king. Instead, Naboth was a man of godly principle. And he turns it down against maybe even his own nature because this man demonstrates that he is led by God himself. What a contrast I think he provides when we turn our eyes to verse 4 and look at Ahab sullen and depressed because he didn't get what he wanted, despondent, sitting there crying his eyes out, pouting on his bed, a king who, though very intelligent, and by the way, he was very intelligent. He was a tremendous builder, as the Scripture tells us. He built great cities, some of which we even see the ruins of today. He was an extremely intelligent man. He was also the most powerful man in all of Israel. But now listen, he was also, as we peer into verse 4, very emotionally immature. That, by the way, is a frightening combination for a leader. To be intelligent, to be powerful, and to be emotionally immature. It's an unholy union of traits for a leader. And so what we see on this bed is not a man. What we see on this bed is a boy who looks like a man who has the power of a man, but who isn't a man. He's a kid in king's clothing, and he's dangerous 
He's led by self-gratification, not self-surrender. Indeed, the Proverbs are correct when it says in Proverbs 16.32, Better is he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city or rules a county or a state or a country. Naboth is a sharp contrast to this immature Ahab, a man who had no authority really over his emotions, a ruler that many times lived without rules, which is the scariest kind of ruler and leader, whether it's of a country or whether it's in a home in Little Rock. It's a scary thing to live with a leader who's strong and powerful, but emotionally immature. Let's go on, verse 5. It says, But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen and that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Well, that's not exactly what he said, but that's Ahab's translation. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Aren't you the king? Don't you reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now remember, this is an insider's look at the first family. We're looking at what goes on behind closed doors, not what is paraded in public. Right? Now I want to ask you something. Who's the driving force of this family? <laughs> I can tell you one thing. It's not the emotional wimp on the couch. That's a hint. Every home, however high or low, every home has a moral and spiritual pace setter, for good or for bad. Every home has one. It may be a man, and ideally the Scripture puts the responsibility on the man to be so, but many men aren't. It may be a woman, by abdication or by force. But let me tell you what it won't be. It won't be both. Leadership requires one to lead, to set the pace, to say what the sense of our home is going to be like. And Jezebel certainly set that in her home. You know, our world likes to deny that reality, but it's a reality that will not go away no matter how much it's paraded on the media as being something that can actually take place. I remember just recently on 2020, Barbara Walters was interviewing Boris Yeltsin, the president of Russia. They talked about politics for a while, but then at the end of the interview, they got personal. And in that personal exchange, Barbara asked Boris Yeltsin, about his marriage and said, are you the head of your home? And President Yeltsin said, yes, I am. Very straightforwardly, yes, I am. And I think that's the place of a man. And uh, Barbara said, but Mr. Yeltsin, don't you know that that would offend a lot of American women to hear you say that? And then there was just this quiet for a moment as he looked at her. And then he said something that tells me he's a lot smarter than he looks. Really, he knows something about human interaction, even in a family. He leaned over and grabbed Barbara's hand and he said, you're the leader, aren't you? <laughs> and I've never seen Barbara without words. 
But she did not answer. She sat there for a moment stunned and then moved on. Every home has one who sets the pace, man or woman, but one. And in this home, it's clear who that one actually is. So Jezebel was the pace setter. She was the one who was strong in many ways because he was weak. She became kind of a hybrid. I want you to follow this. A hybrid kind of mate, a wife slash mother. That's what she was for this seemingly public, powerful man, a wife mother, a man who's emotionally immature. And by the way, ladies, emotionally immature men love to make a wife mother out of you when you should be a mate. And they use that and use you as a substitute for not growing up emotionally. So look again at verse 7. You can almost hear, and I'm going to paraphrase for a moment, her say this. Honey, it's going to be okay. You're the king. Arise, have some bread. Let your heart be joyful. Mommy's going to give you the vineyard. <laughs> and oh boy, does she. Look how she concocts a plot to get the vineyard. Verse 8, she writes letters, not in her name, of course, <laughs> in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seek Naboth at the head of the people and seek two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, You curse God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. This is what I call Naboth gate. That's what it is here. It's a conspiracy with a religious and political glaze over it. She says, proclaim a fast, doesn't she, in verse 9. Make it something religious. You know, maybe there's some kind of calamity that's befallen the people. And uh, proclaim a fast, because that's how, during the midst of a fast, we find out who's responsible for this calamity. Maybe there had just been one. So they proclaim this fast. They set Naboth up. They put two worthless men around him, because it takes two witnesses to confirm facts under Mosaic law. And these two worthless guys says, you curse God and king, maybe referring to the interaction that Ahab had with Naboth. Probably he broke his contract and cursed you know, Ahab. And then when Ahab called him to a godly reconciliation, he cursed God too. That was kind of the conjured up charge, which we know is false. And so Naboth would get stoned. What makes this plot shocking is not the fact that Jezebel concocted the plot or that Ahab passively went along with it, and certainly he did. What makes it shocking is that the plot could actually be pulled off because it involves so many people to actually take into effect. It required the local authorities of the town of Jezreel. It required the populace who, who all knew Naboth. And Naboth, I can guarantee you, was one of the city's finest. He had a proven track record. He was a man of godly principle. I bet he was one of the outstanding citizens in that small community. It would take a lot to get this man stoned. And yet look what happens. Verse 11. The letter arrives and the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived there, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. Just as it is written the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast. They seated Naboth at the head of the table. The two worthless men come and they testify against him, just like she had asked. And then look at verse 14. Then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. 
And it came about when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Okay, honey, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive. He's dead. And I want you to know, more died than just Naboth that day. According to 2 Kings 9.26, all his sons were taken out and stoned with him. The whole family was executed because he, had, he was said to have blasphemed God. The whole family was wiped out. And by having them wiped out, what happened? It left the land without heirs so that the land suddenly had to be turned over to the state of Israel and ultimately to the king, King Ahab. Let me say what I said earlier as we began the message. Government is ultimately our reflection, and you see that in these people who go along with the plot. What it is, we are. What it does, we accept. What it legislates, we tolerate. And nowhere can that be better illustrated than right here in a kingdom some 2,900 years ago. Things have not changed very much. What these people do when the government goes bad is exactly the opposite of what I want to exhort you in this morning. They teach us from their failure. There's two reasons here, or two responses here that they had, and both were wrong. One by the local officials who just simply think, well, it's big government. I've got to go along with it, or else maybe I'll lose my position. And then the people of all people who know this man, and they passively sit by or wring their hands while this despicable plot is carried out and this family is stoned to death. Both groups, I am convinced, the next morning when they gathered at the coffee shop and they were just musing on what had taken place, both groups are going to blame big government. They're going to pass it off on somebody else that they just had to go along with it. But I have a question for you this morning. Who killed Naboth? Who killed him? I want you to know his friends, his neighbors, the guy he worked next to in the field, they are just as guilty as if they had written the edict of death themselves. That's what this passage cries out to us the people who rule government because government is ultimately of the people. Bad government is never of them. You know, that senator, that legislator, that president, you know, that king. You know, them. They're the problem. I want you to know, in this democracy, there's no them. There's only us. And even in a monarchy, that is true. Anytime you fear standing up for truth, you sign a partnership with evil. Anytime you step back from truth speaking because of some fear of reprisal in this day and age, because you might lose your position or somebody might think you're weird or whatever it might be, and I'm sure these people felt the same fear in their own life, you don't escape pain. You don't get away from it. You only increase the size of the pain that will ultimately befall this country. Ultimately. What we see in this story at a very local level, and for us that's good because we're at a local level here, is a people tolerating 
a blasphemous evil for the sake of their own personal safety. And we all want to be safe. But there's not many places to hide anymore. What we see is a people paralyzed by the myth that they can't do anything about it. This is just the way things are. And blaming bad government, I'm sure, while the God of heaven weeps, weeps, and prepares for them an unnecessary destruction, which is only a few years in the future for this kingdom. Who killed Naboth? Who killed him? Everyone here. I can't help but wonder where the local Levitical priest was during all this. <laughs> Why didn't he speak out? Why wasn't he there reasoning from the Scripture? Probably for the same reason many religious leaders don't speak out with forcefulness today. Fear of reprisal. Fear of position. Fear of loss of popularity or whatever it might be. I recently read the official position of the United Methodist Church on abortion. And it said these words, quote, We affirm the sacredness of life, of the life of the unborn child. And we equally affirm the right of the mother to not carry an unacceptable pregnancy. Now, there are many Methodists who wouldn't hold to that. But that's the official position. It's a sensitive statement. It's ecclesiastical bull. It's what it is. It's the kind of statement, the kind of religious edict that would have, well, it would have made Jezebel proud. It would have gotten Ahab off his couch and, and he would have had a sumptuous meal hearing that kind of edict. It's religious doublespeak. Two things laced together by fear that don't fit together. It's an affirmation. No, no, it's, an, it's a capitulation to culture rather than submission to divine truth. I want you to know ours is a day where neutrality is an ever-shrinking island. Do you feel it? Somewhere you've got to get off. Ours is a culture where silence is cloaked cowardness. Ours is a culture where passivity must be considered equal to the crime. That's what 1 Kings 21 says to me. It doesn't have to be this way, of course. There's a responsible way of acting, and we see one act out our response to the government in which we live. His name is Elijah. He does something that's scary. I'm sure it was scary for him, but real change in society will not occur when we, quote, vote and throw the bums out. I'm going to tell you. Real change will only begin at the grassroots level when you discover the power of one. And Elijah is a great model of this kind of power. Look at verse 17. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. I'm sure he didn't want it to come to him, but it came. It said, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered? Now notice he doesn't say, Has Jezebel murdered? No, no. No, we're going to get everybody involved in this who are really involved. You did it! You're the leader. You're the king. And you're responsible. You murdered 
and have also taken possession. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? <laughs> Absolutely. But you know what's funny about this? Elijah was not Ahab's enemy. He was never Ahab's enemy. He never lifted up the sword against Ahab. He never charged or even incited a insurrection. The only thing he ever did to Ahab is what you should pray for that your very best friend would do for you. And that's speak the truth. You have no greater friend than he who speaks the truth to you. But when your heart is sold out the opposite direction, you do become an enemy. Have you found me, O my enemy? And Elijah says, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. You know your dream, Ahab, to have this great kingdom, to have sons follow you in your footsteps, to be powerful, to create a great land? It's done. You've lost it. Now, there's a lot that follows about this particular judgment, some of it very graphic and very specific, and may I add, every bit of it fulfilled to the letter in which it was stated. But let me encourage you for our sakes not to get lost in the judgment here for a moment, for the truth that applies to us here is not the specific judgment, but a simple truth, a very encouraging truth, and it's this, Elijah, Elijah stood up. He spoke up and he got results. Look with me in verse 27. It says, And it came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put, it, put on sackcloth and fasted. No longer did he seek to kill Elijah. Now there's a certain humbleness that comes on him. And he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and he went about despondently. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Now, I want you to know as you follow out the rest of Ahab's life, there wasn't total repentance in his life. He didn't suddenly make restitution for the land. He didn't somehow break off his relationship with his mom Jezebel. He, there was a lot of things he didn't do, but he was publicly humbled in front of the nation and the nation knew it and there were results from it for a time. It gave the opportunity of the people, this nation witnessing this guy, this Tishbite facing the king, some encouragement that they could stand up and speak up to. That's what happened. I'm sure there were young, faltering believers in Israel who didn't like what's going on and who felt bound, who suddenly felt released that God would honor them taking bold steps of action too. I'm sure there were some who were sitting on the fence, not sure who to commit to, Baal or God, who in seeing this committed themselves for the first time to God. There are always people watching and the rain is blessing this message. So listen, because <laughs> water is a sign of the Spirit. But there were people there who were, in, in this situation, who were so encouraged by what they saw, and I'm sure there'll be some names in heaven because of this incident. Can that happen to you? Can you be an encouragement to others? Can you walk just a little bit in Elijah's shoes? Sure you can, and every day you get the opportunity to do it. Recently I was invited to speak at the law school and engage in some lively debate on law and religion. 
The invitation, by the way, was issued to me, not because of me, but because of the courage of a young Christian lady who was in the class and who felt to some degree that the class was one-sided in its presentation and heavily biased against us, <laughs> you know, the fundamentalist. <laughs> and I think she felt emotionally alone and maybe even overpowered in her young faith. But I want you to know, rather than roll over, she did something that few people do in a classroom. She began to speak out a little bit. She got beat up for it, but she spoke out and she challenged the professor to invite a real live fundy into the class. <laughs> and I got called and I went. And it was good. It was a good debate. It got intense at times, but it was healthy. It was heated at points, but it was all positive, I felt. And there were some myths that were shadowed, but that's not the point of me telling you that. Here's the point. Since that class, I have gotten a number of those students who have called me on the phone. Some who wanted to know just a little bit more about what I actually believed. Some who wanted to talk a little bit more about certain social issues and how the Bible really relates to that. Even a letter from the dean's wife thanking me for coming. And then most recently, I got a letter from another young lady in the class who said, you don't know me. I was the one who asked this particular question. But I was scared to speak up. And I didn't know what to say. And I, I just kind of blended in. And I was so glad you came because what you believe, I believe. And that so encouraged me to hear you speaking out in the class. Now, I want you to know, some of those moments are life-changing because there are people who are just tottering on the fence. They'd like to speak out, but they just want to see one, just one example of somebody doing it with some style and with some forcefulness and with some conviction. And when you do, it unleashes all these little encouragements for them to go forward as well. And who knows that that young lady might be in a law room someday not pressing for money, but pressing for truth because of that little turning point. All of this was set in motion by the power of one, not me, but that young law student who had the courage to just slip on a few of Elijah's shoes for a moment. Two years ago, we had the NC-17, Harry and June, come to our city, and a number of us went down and just spoke uh, to the manager of the station. These are just little things in the society, but this is government by the people. That led to calls to the regional manager in Dallas of that movie chain who was incredibly receptive and encouraging to our calls. So much so that he said, hey, I'm going to do, this is going to give me all kinds of good information to call back to Los Angeles and talk to them about what the people want. And here recently, the prosecuting attorney calls me and a few others saying that the national motion picture industry was coming to Little Rock to do a focus group. And they had heard of our concerns and wanted us to be in the group. The power of one, that's you. You're the government. It's government by the people. And what you want, it will ultimately do. What action you take, it'll ultimately respond. And what you say you won't tolerate, eventually 
It won't legislate either. When the government goes bad, when society goes bad, when the church goes bad, it is critical that you look to yourself first before anybody else. It's critical that you ask yourself on whatever that issue is so that you just don't go off half-caught. What does the Scripture say? And you work at it till you have a clear, defensible answer that you can take out in the marketplace and speak in terms of a citizen, not just a Christian. And then it is of utmost importance that you become an Elijah in this day. The island is shrinking. And you take steps to stand up for social justice. Right now, pollsters are telling us that there is no moral consensus in America. We are a morally divided kingdom in America today. There's no common morality. That's what they're telling us. Eventually, I want you to know we will settle down. You can't stay in that ambivalence forever. And how far right or how far wrong we land ultimately will depend not on the government, but on the governed. And what we wanted and what we spoke up for. Hear me with this principle. In the 90s, the voice is more powerful than the vote. That's why so many special interests can easily move us, the public, and the government because of the voice. Where is your voice? Don't be the community of Jezreel. Don't be the authorities of Jezreel. There's a price to pay on the front end. It's scary. It was scary when Elijah went and did what he did. But ultimately, a price will be paid. It's just when you want to pay it. So how can you be an Elijah? Well, most of us are not prepared to publicly confront a king right now. And I know that. But there's some very simple things that you can do. The first would be this. I want you to turn over to Matthew 18 just for a moment. And give me just three or four more minutes. But Matthew 18, 15, for some of us, maybe we're new Christians. But here's a verse that if you do nothing else out of this message, here's a verse to memorize. Here's a verse to tuck away in your mind and let the Spirit of God bring it up because it empowers you, the people. In chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's how the governed govern. First of all, they look to themselves. Galatians 6.1 tells us we need to be sure we're not involved in that sin. But when there's sin of a friend, of a neighbor, of a family member, it's not the pastor's job to go clean it up. It's your job. You have the greatest invitation into that life. And if you go, you go with gentleness, you go with love, but you go as Elijah with truth in private to protect him. And if he listens to you, you've won him. You didn't beat him. That's not the goal, to run over him and win. You've won him. Won him to what? Won him back to the kingdom. Won him back to his own dignity. Won him back to truth. If you want a good starting place in being Elijah, this would be a good one for everyone. Just memorize the verse and the Spirit of God will be faithful to bring it to you at the appropriate time and to help this community regulate itself by its own morality. 
Some of you might just simply ask God for courage. That would be a great application point. Just take where you are with the situations you face and begin to ask God to strengthen your trembling heart. Just to exercise courage. And you'll be amazed if you ask, you'll receive. And there'll be a moment where suddenly you find yourself inspired by the Spirit of God to speak up and speak out and you will be surprised at the results. <laughs> there'll be people coming around you, I promise, who when you do that in that moment, who'll say, I am so glad you said that. I mean, I've been feeling that forever. I'm just so glad to see somebody finally say it. If you don't say it, who's going to? That's the message of Elijah. Some of you might want to take on a greater challenge. Maybe there's some social issue that's burning in your heart in here. Something you see that's a wrong. You see it around you every day. Why not take that if you really burn for that? Form a common cause group and spend next year working with some others who have the same passion to address it. Government is ultimately the reflection of us, the people. When we change, when we take courage, when we speak up, when we step out, when we do these things personally, government will change publicly. Let's stand. And let's stand as a commitment to these truths and commit ourselves to one of these applications. Let's pray together. Father, we, we need courage today. I know we need it. We all don't want to look different. It's a natural tendency of our heart. And yet help us to finish this life not regretting that we didn't do the right when we had the opportunity to do it. Help us to realize this is a democracy that you've allowed us to have and to preserve that democracy. The people must be empowered. I pray as we leave here that one situation, one opportunity might remain in our minds by your spirit that we can address, that we can step into in the spirit of Elijah and discover that that's what you made us to do. And then to see the results of that and to know that that's why you stand with us to bless. Lord, help us not to shrink back Help us to realize we, we are the government. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.